0: everyone we're so glad you're joining us for a behind the scenes conversation about one of our scarier stories in the June 2017 issue called when your child is a psychopath I'm Denise Wills the editor on the story and I worked closely with the writer Barbara Bradley Haggerty so Barb I thought we could talk about some of the things that never made it into the print or online edition and talk a little bit about what it was like for you to report this story that sounds great how did you get onto this topic
1: well, a few years ago when I was um, a staff reporter for National Public Radio, I did a three-part series on the criminal brain. And what I learned in doing that is that psychopaths actually have different looking and functioning brains than the rest of us. And it was a really fascinating series, but along the way I kept hearing about the fact that psychologists could see the warning signs for psychopathy in kids as young as three and four. And it was just kind of this mind-blowing idea. And I didn't have a chance to do it for NPR, so I pitched it to you guys. So are we talking about a lot of
0: Children, how common are these warning signs?
1: Well, it's about a little less than one percent of the population. That's about of the child population. That's about the same percentage as kids with autism. So it's actually fairly common. Um, and let me just step back for a second. Now, psychologists don't like to call children psychopaths because it's kind of too deterministic and too much of a stigma. So what they do is they say that these kids have callous, unemotional traits. And what that means is there's kind of a cluster of traits that these kids exhibit that are rather unusual, like they seem to lack empathy, they don't have remorse, they don't show any guilt, they can be really aggressive and violent at a young age. They, they don't care about punishment. Like, you put them in time out and they couldn't care less. And they can be really manipulative. So um, there are this kind of subset of kids. And what she say is that most kids with callous and unemotional traits actually don't become psychopaths. They don't actually become violent criminals or people who set up Ponzi schemes and steal all your money, right? About four out of five turn out okay. But you never know if your child is going to be the one that turns out okay or is the one that ends up on death row.
0: So why don't we hear more about this condition?
1: Well, you know, it's mainly because the parents don't want to talk about it. So put yourself in the parent's place. It's bad enough that your child is trying to choke her classmate or drown his little brother in the swimming pool, but then they get blamed for it. So I heard a, a bunch of stories from people who, who declined to talk with me for this story. One woman talked about how she spoke anonymously on public radio about her plight and about her child, and people figured out who she was, and soon she was getting hundreds of emails t- calling her a terrible parent. Her marriage nearly broke up, it was just it was a nightmare scenario. Another woman told me that Her child had complained that um, her parents were beating her and not feeding her. And so Child Protective Services got involved, and they began investigating the family. They threatened to actually take away the other kids before they realized that this child was a little bit psychopathic, was lying, but it was just a miserable situation. So the upshot is you don't have parents talk about this. There's no support group for, you know, parents of psychopathic kids. And so it's kind of a silent, silent misery. You profiled an 11 year old
0: girl whom you called Samantha. Could you talk a little bit about how you found her and what she was like?
1: Yeah, you know, it took a lot of work, uh, you know, because parents don't want to talk about this. So I found a, a woman who knew a woman who knew a woman who knew Jen and Danny, who had this daughter named, um, S- we call her Samantha. And um, she was really, really interesting. I, I visited her in her in the treatment center she was staying in. Her family lives in Idaho, but she's in Texas. And what was fascinating about, about her was that initially she seemed like this kind of normal 11-year-old kid. She was she's a little shy, but she was pretty. She was um, she was, could be charming. But what happened is as she began to realize that I wanted to talk to her about these touchy subjects, like, you know, wanting to kill her family, right? As she realized that I wasn't going to judge her and that I just wanted to hear her stories, she began to open up and she told me about how she wanted to... Um, kill her family and other people that she had done these sketches of with the methods of murder like a knife and a bow and arrow and things like that. What what really interested me was the fact that she got so animated, much more animated when she talked about the potential to harm someone than any other thing. So, for example, we were talking um, and she was telling me about this time she snuck out of her house when she was eight years old one night to go look at her elderly neighbor's house. And what she was doing, she said, was kind of casing the joint. She's looking at the windows, looking at the locks, trying to figure out how she could enter. Not to go in that night, but just to case it so that she could back on a subsequent night and go in and hurt them. And I said, oh, my goodness, Samantha, I mean, like, do you you hate your neighbors? And she said, no, I love my neighbors. But they were older, they were frail, they were easy targets, and so she wanted to hurt them.
0: And she showed you some of her sketches, right? Yeah,
1: they were really really kind of unnerving. Um, The one that sticks in my mind, I mean, there was a knife, there was a bow and arrow, there was a bag for suffocation, there were um, lists of chemicals. But the one that really stuck in my mind was two stick figures. One of them had her hands around the other one's neck right? Choking, the other one. The one who was being choked looked rather alarmed, but the one who was doing the choking, i.e. Samantha, had this gleeful, happy smile on her face. It, it was really pretty awful. And how old was she when she, she drew that? She was six years old. Wow. What was it that surprised
0: you most in your reporting for this story?
1: One of the things that really got to me that, that hit home was how different neurologically and physiologically these children are. So their brains do operate differently and their brains look different when you do a brain scan. But one of the really interesting things is that one of the biggest predictors for a child becoming a violent criminal is having a low resting heart rate. What scientists believe is going on there is that these children don't feel fear under stressful situations, and so their heart rate never rises. It doesn't rise. Um, I remember telling Jen about this, and we're sitting there, and I thought, you know, isn't that really interesting? And she looked at me, and she goes, ah, that makes sense. And then she told me this story about Samantha. So when Samantha was six years old in 2011, it was right before Christmas, they were. It was the middle of the night, and suddenly the family hears this horrific crash in the living room. And they go running downstairs, and Samantha's room is actually downstairs. They go running downstairs, and there they see the, this huge Christmas tree over on its side. There were ornaments everywhere, there were shattered glass, everything. And no Samantha, just a fallen Christmas tree. And Jen thinks that probably Samantha had something to do with this, but Danny didn't think so. But they walked into Samantha's room, and there she is sleeping on her bed. Now, Danny is a family physician, so what he did is, you know, he went over, he said, you know, she's, Jen said, I don't think she's sleeping. And Danny said, yeah, I think she is. And he he took Samantha's pulse. And he goes, yeah, she has to be sleeping. I mean, she's got a really, really low pulse rate. And so they left and the next day, Jen didn't buy it. And she said to Samantha, so no consequences here. Tell me what happened last night. And Samantha said, oh, well, you know, I saw an ornament at the top of the tree and I wanted to pull it off and break it. But when I reached over to get it, the whole tree fell over. And so I just ran back into the room and just pretended I was asleep. And Danny was standing there listening to this. And that was when he realized that we have a real problem here. This this child is physiologically different from the rest of us. This is pretty scary.
0: You write in your piece that Children like Samantha, who have callous and unemotional traits, can be quite manipulative. You also interviewed a number of them, including some at a juvenile treatment center in Wisconsin. Did you ever feel that you were being manipulated, and how did you deal with that? Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, we live in Washington, and we're used to being spinned, right, (laughs) by by politicians. But these people are kind of like masters. These kids are masters at the spin. So when I was at Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center in Madison, Wisconsin, it's where kind of the worst of the worst kids are, the most violent juveniles are. And I met a guy named Monty. I'll call him Monty. He was 17 years old. He was, you know, polite, hyper articulate. He wore thick glasses, so he kind of looked more like he was—he should be in the high school chess club rather than <laughs> the juvenile treatment center. And so I'm talking to him about why he ended up here. And he tells me, yeah, I, I, I was with a bunch of friends, and we robbed a gas station, and I was holding a knife, and so that's why I'm here. And I'm like, gee, that seems pretty mild to be in this really dangerous place. So I look over at Cindy Epson, who's the director who runs the the treatment center. And I said, Cindy, what am I missing here? And she looks over at Monty and she says, okay, when was your first encounter with the police? And Monty says, 11. And I say, what'd you do? And he says, I ripped the leg off a table, and I smacked my teacher with it. And when he said this, he swung his arms as if he was slugging a baseball. I literally gasped. It was such a violent thing for an 11-year-old to do. And I realized, you know, here's this guy. I think he's this cute little geek, but he actually has this violent temper that can just explode in the blink of an eye. So yes, they were very charming, very manipulative.
0: This is a really dark story. Uh, is there any silver lining here? Did you find any reason for
1: hope? Well, I'm, I'm pausing because I kind of want to say yes and no. So psychopathy is long thought to be incurable, and that's still is considered to be true for adults. But for kids, you know, the brain is still forming, especially the executive part of the brain, right into their mid-20s. So there is some thinking that if you can get them early enough, give them warm parenting, um, that these kids will change a little bit. So far, the treatment has only worked at the margins. Um, It really isn't, people aren't that optimistic right now with the immediate treatments. But there was one guy that I profiled who kind of gives us a mixed picture. He had graduated from the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center. He's now 37. And uh, he was really in bad shape. He was a holy terror when he was a kid. He used to swing the family cat around by the tail and then let it go and thwap. It would hit the, the wall and he'd kill his sisters, hamsters, and and he would, you know, set fires and beat people up, and that was all by age 15, right? And he ends up um, going to Mendota. When they test him out, he tests out at 38 of a possible 40 on the youth psychopathy checklist, which is really bad. Like, that's about as bad as you can get. And yet, he did pretty well in treatment there, and with one kind of brush with the law, he actually, from age, like, 20... He was doing really well and he ended up getting married well getting married three times but getting married starting his own business moving out to california no no brushes with the law and what i thought is oh my goodness this is such a dark story now i have like you know, something happy to say <laughs> about about budding psychopaths. Um, this is gonna be great. And so I was really kind of excited to go out there. I'd interviewed him for several hours on the phone and I was really excited to go out there to, to LA. And you know what happened, right? Well
0: the the night before you were scheduled to fly to California, you get an email from his wife. Right. Could you tell us what she <laughs> <Yeah>. said?
1: <laughs> she said he's in police custody. So here's mm-hmm. like my success case who is now like in police custody. So, you and I talked about this. Remember we thought, you know, should I even bother going out there and And we decided I should and I think i 'm so glad we did because what you got is this really nuanced view of what it 's like to have a mind like this and what it 's like to be in someone's orbit like this. And so I go out there and you know I can't interview his name is Carl. We're calling him Carl. I can't interview Carl because you know he's in a he's in a hearing in a little orange LA County jumpsuit and he's kind of across the room. I can't interview him. But I um, but I do, you know, spend time with his wife. And what I realized from this is that it is really hard for him to color within the lines. It's hard for him to just be normal. Actually, he told me, I asked him, how difficult is it for you just to like be normal, just to stay within the law? And he said, it's really, really difficult. It's like eight on a scale of 10. I mean, it's really hard. So that's one thing. It's just hard for him to be normal. But his poor wife, I spent a day with her. She is 24. She has a one-year-old. I'm sitting there. She's sitting there with her one-year-old at the courthouse worried that her husband is not going to get out on bail. I drive her up to a crematorium because she's basically having to handle the family business. And while we're on the way, she's trying to negotiate with bail bondsmen uh, about how to get him out. I mean, what a life both of them have. It is a life of chaos. And I was really glad that I was able to see this because even though he doesn't want to be like this, even though he wants to be good, he he leaves a trail of chaos everywhere he goes. Let's go back
0: to his business, because I think this is one of the more fascinating things about Carl. Yes, he runs a successful business, but could you talk a little bit about <laughs> what it is and why he chose that profession?
1: Yeah, he runs a funeral business, and the way he described it to me, he said, you know, when I was younger, I had this kind of fascination with knives but, and, you know, death, and it's a little bit morbid and ghoulish, but, you know, I didn't want to go down there because that's, uh, that's the place of serial killers, right? That's what he said. But this kind of gives him access to death and a little bit of cutting, right? Um, things like that. Uh, and and it gives him kind of this chance to be around it without actually committing a crime. He's actually performing a service. And so for him, it's kind of the perfect thing. Now, so what's really weird about this choice of business is that you actually need to have empathy, right? People are crying, they've just lost their loved ones. and. What he told me is initially he didn't really have empathy, but he trained himself to have it. Actually, his sister, who didn't have a lot of nice things to say about uh, Carl, said that, you know, it's amazing to watch him with clients because he's really... He, he helps them. He's a shoulder they can, you know, cry on, lean on. He's really, really good with clients. He says he now feels empathy, that he's actually trained his brain to feel it, which is really interesting. But when I've talked to other people who used to, his psychologists at Mendota, what they said is, you know, it's a really interesting business for um, someone like him because you can comfort someone during the day who just lost their son in a car accident and watch Dancing with the Stars at night and actually feel no disconnect. It's like it's fine.
0: So at the end of the day did you conclude that Carl is a success story?
1: I actually did Uh, and I talked to his psychologist about this too. You know think about where he came from uh, that 38 out of 40 on the youth psychopathy checklist. Now he has his own business. He has a family, a child, a wife. Um, What the psychologists at Mendota say is you know we don't expect these people to be Mother Teresa at the end. Well, all we want is that they're not killing people and you know, committing armed robbery. And he's not doing those things. So he is considered a success case. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Barb.
0: Thank you.